All right, everybody, this Dojo Talks was a suggestion of mine. And 1972 was, of course, the year that Fisher Spassky happened. Really a breakthrough year for chess all over the world, but especially in the, let's call it the Western world, the United States and Western Europe, um, vastly popularizing the game. And the other thing is, of course, I'm going to be 50 years this uh I'm going to be 50 years old this year. So it's a moment to kind of reflect. And I'm just sometimes stunned when I think back on all of the ways that chess has changed in my lifetime. And so I wanted to just use this opportunity to reflect on some of those changes, how the game has changed. And I thought it'd be interesting to bounce some of my thoughts, observations off of these two guys who belong to different generations. David's about 10 years younger than me. And then Kosia's about, what, 20 years younger than mm -hmm. me. So we've kind of got difference in, in, in generations where <coughs> Kosia basically has been grown, like grew up with the computer uh, being there all the time, whereas I did not. The computer came really later. So I wanted to reflect on some of those changes. Okay, so I'll tell you what, I'm going to, just name some of the big changes and we can talk about them however you please. All right. Now, the first change, and I think the most, the biggest one in my lifetime has been the demographic change, um, both in terms of who are the top players and who plays in general. So, for example, when I was a kid, uh, India wasn't playing chess. China wasn't playing chess. Uh, there was really, uh, it was a Western game, you know? Um, and so you went to tournaments and uh, the, it was all, first of all, in the United States, there were like some Asian kids, but it wasn't that big of a thing. And the top kids in the States and really all over the world were these Russian Jewish kids. I remember I would go to the top tournaments when I was a kid. It was always these Russian Jewish kids that they're, either their parents had emigrated or uh, they had themselves come over quite recently from some Eastern Bloc country, usually, usually the Soviet Union. Um, and so when you think about it, just in terms of if you just imagine a map of the world, there was just a few countries where a significant amount of people were playing. We're talking about uh, the Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc. And then we've got some Western uh, European countries where a lot of tournaments were being held because there was some money there, a little bit of tradition, say in the Netherlands, Germany, uh, England, but not that many tournaments. Uh, and then a little bit in the United States with the Fisher boom. And before the Fisher boom, you know, we weren't terrible before the Fisher boom. We had some other players, but it wasn't uh, that significant. Um, but even after the Fisher boom, it's got to be said, the level of play, the amount of tournaments you could play in was not that high. And our top players were going over to Europe to play. Now things have shifted dramatically, where if you just think about a map of the world, like so many countries have strong chess teams now. Imagine Vietnam. Vietnam's got an amazing chess tradition now. It's happened very recently. All these, and all these, a lot of small countries you'd never even thought of with chess. And there's only a couple pockets of the developed world where there's no chess. Like, for example, I think Japan is one of the few countries which still has basically no chess uh, development. Okay, I'm ranting a little bit, but it's amazing <laughs> to me to just go back and reflect on it. Obviously, the computer. We'll talk a little bit about that, about how that's changed. Um, and how that's changed how we think about the game, for sure. There's a lot to be said about that. And we got to, I guess, the other thing on my mind, and I'm interested in what you guys think of as the most prominent shifts as well. But the other thing on my mind is how social media, especially in the last 10 years, has actually changed the game. I, I do think it's really changed the way people think and approach the game. Anyways, I'm going to stop there. I'm talking too much. I'll turn it over to you, and then we can talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Uh, yeah, great. No, maybe, David, maybe you want to go next and give your, I don't know, I think I'd background. like to pick up on what, on what Jesse said about the demographic thing for a second, because, you know, around the time or shortly before Fisher won the match against Spassky, there was a USSR versus rest of the world match, and the USSR won it. Right. So if you want a sense of like the level of the rest of 
the world how much chess there was out there, right? Like a single very large country <laughs> could defeat all the other countries of the world. And honestly, the rest of the world outperformed expectations in that match, right? Mm -hmm. They were expected just like be absolutely slaughtered. It, honestly, it's like it was hard to conceive of that being competitive enough to even be a good mm -hmm. match. But, but to be fair, USSR was like Russia, Armenia, Ukraine. Yeah. So that's why I said like one big country. But, <laughs> but, but it wasn't Hungary. It wasn't Poland. Well, there's all these other Eastern Bloc countries that were not part right. of the USSR team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think there was like a pretty long period in chess history where even if the USSR didn't use players who weren't from Russia, I mean, they could have basically played a pretty fair match against the rest of the world. Right. Yeah. So like you could take away Mikhail Tal or something, but they had enough of the top, you know, 20, 30 grandmasters in the world that they could still play a good match against the rest of the world at any point. And then when Jesse mentions like chess in different places and like how India now has like a large percentage of the top juniors, right. And all these world youth under 12, under 13, under 14, you know, they're like cleaning up medals. Well, India didn't get their first grandmaster until Anand in 1988, you know, by which time I was already born. <laughs> um, but um you know, India was like, it was like absolutely nothing like Jesse was saying, but then like, you've got even like countries that are much newer than India, as far as being chess powers, you've got like Uzbekistan, which is still maybe like two years away from being like an international chess power. But like, you can already, you can already tell when you look at like the junior tournaments over the last couple of years or like Iran to right. Iran and Uzbekistan two two very much like just, you know, where did that come from? Um, right. To suddenly become top uh, chess countries, so I think I think that's um, I I think that that's one of the biggest trends really is like how chess has moved around the world and sort of you know changed where it's where it's uh, where it's played and um, yeah what, what what that makes me wonder about when there was Fisher versus the Soviets it was like this very clear clash between like an individual genius, like coming out of like nowhere, right? Like if you compare Fisher's level with like the chess community he came out of, he scored like 11-0 in a US championship, right? So it was like, it wasn't like he got better thanks to the competition that other American players provided him or like study buddies or anything like that, right? He like, like had this narrative, like he just like was all on his own, did it, right? And the Soviet Union, where there's like strong chess culture, clubs, you know, competition, seconds at tournaments, you know, like teams preparing before events and stuff like that. And I wonder with the new with the new world that we have now, whether you guys feel like we've got a bunch of like random geniuses in different places or whether we still have like groups and pockets of culture that are actually like building them up. Right. Like when you see. 14 geniuses in the same country like Uzbekistan or Iran mm -hmm. is there is there like a chess culture and a program that's bringing them up or they just happen to be a few geniuses in the same place at the same time I, I think it's definitely the culture especially in a place uh, like India where they have like all these great coaches mm -hmm. um, and yeah of course Anand like inspired like just a huge generation of, of players there but I think over the last couple of years, I mean, they've, uh, you know, they've done all these like training sessions, their players are sponsored, you know, the, they get, uh, uh, you know, paid to go play in tournaments and travel. So I think it's really just that like entire culture that's done so well for, uh, for India. I'm not sure how it works in China, but I would imagine some similar thing where it's like all the players are getting supported and they're like spending a lot of money on coaching and training and really it's like the whole country is, is involved. I mean, briefly, they do all move to like one building in Beijing um, mm. once they're identified as being talents and they all live in that same building and, and train. Oh, well, well, yeah, yeah. That definitely feels like uh, a culture <laughs> thing. <laughs> Very centralized in that sense. Like every, you know, it would be like every single, like, oh, you're good at chess. You have to live in this building. <laughs> <laughs> Though I do think it's got to be said, it's, I think it's an obvious point, is that the computer and the internet have uh, 
reduce the importance of those chest centers. For example, uh, like when I was a kid, I was growing up in New Mexico. You, you just like you could play. There was like a couple masters in the whole state, and I'd have to like drive some, get somebody to drive me to go play these guys. And that was the case really throughout the United States. And there was just a couple centers. And for the most part, it was for the longest time was New York City. So we can talk about Fisher being on his own, but actually he had loads of strong players in New York City to fight against coming up. And that was the center for the most part forever. And now the computer has vastly uh, reduced the importance of distance. And we see it especially now in the last couple of years where the people are just hiding out in their houses. <laughs> it's hard to talk about culture when people are hiding out in their houses, but they're, you know, they're hanging out with each other. And if you look at the Indian chess scene, right? Like uh, Shagar Shah in that whole chess base India and other like streamers, they've got a whole scene going, but it's online, you know, mm. it's online. So it's a totally, it's, yeah, it's, it's reduced the, the geographical importance. Um, and with that, I think it's, I think it's interesting, important to say that I feel as every year goes by less committed to like a national identity. I still into it. I'm still in the idea of like maybe a U.S. world champion or a U.S. team winning the Olympiad. But I think what was interesting in the last uh, controversy with Duboff and the Russian team was they're still really into it. <laughs> they're still into like the national identity and proving yourself as a nation or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I look at a kid like Ali Reza, that kid's a citizen of the world. Would it be cool for Iran if he won? I guess, but he's really just out there. You know, does he belong to France? No. Does he belong to Iran? Not really, you know? So I think in a lot of ways, he's like one of these examples of this computer generation. He's, he's definitely played more games online than he's played over the board, you know? So anyways, I'm just saying, I think it's still important, but, but drastically reduced from what it used to be. Yeah, no, it definitely feels like for me, the biggest change <coughs> since, since the 72, I mean, it's had, it has to be like computers and engines and just how much easier it's gotten to study the game. I think that's definitely a big part of why we see now so many players from all over the world is because they have the same access to all the books and databases um, that the USSR used to have like a huge advantage on. Uh, just having like games to the tournaments and analysis and being able to read in Russian, you know, used to be used to be an edge. Um, now, of course, I think that's all uh, pretty much uh, pretty much gone. Um, and that was the biggest change for me, like because I when I started playing tournaments, uh, chess on the computer wasn't yet a thing. But I remember when I was pretty young, like maybe eight or nine, I saw my first ad for like ICC. And it was like play chess uh -huh. online. I think yeah. maybe it was like around 2000 or so. I'm really not sure. Uh, and then when I saw that, I got like very excited, um, but I actually didn't end up playing until like a couple years later. So I think I was a few years late to ICC. I think I was probably like 13 mm -hmm. or 14 when I actually started started playing on there. And um, yeah, it was just like the wild, wild west. <laughs> it's just like you could play as many games as you want. You can play in tournaments. You could do like uh, you can solve puzzles with the puzzle bot. I mean, it was it was totally revolutionary because chess used to be just like an exclusively paper thing. You solve puzzles on worksheets and you play it on a plastic board. And now it's like, yeah, the computer, I think it just changed everything. Um, Here's another thing that changed yeah. everything. Uh, it's economic opportunities within chess mm. because having access to like training and stuff that can get you started, right? But I think a lot of people in the West used to quit once they got into chess. Right. They would reach a certain age and, you know, their themselves or their families or their friends or just their social milieu would say like, okay, it's really cool that you're into that Russian game, but uh, <laughs> like, yeah. what, what are you gonna do? Like earn like five pounds an hour for like mm -hmm. teaching lessons or get like a real job and earn 10 times that much, you know? And chess wasn't it, like, it didn't have economic opportunities. So, so number one, to have chess all over the world, number one, you need people to have access to it, which the computers provided 
right? But then number two, you need there to be like a path for them to keep playing instead of like quitting, uh, you know, as they, as they go from childhood to adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. I want us to stress, like when I was a kid, if chess was shrugged off by all of the adults in my life, whether it was my family, teachers, and I was just interested in chess and no one, no, no, they were just like, that's just some dumb game. It wasn't even a Russian game. They didn't even know it was a Russian game. You know, so it was like there was no support or belief that it could be something outside of just some dumb thing, you know. Right. And that was a big psychological problem for me as a kid. And even it took me a long time to uh, get over that. For example, I had a choice really when I was like 18 to either go to college where I had the opportunity because of a chess scholarship to go to, to college or to just play chess. And because of that societal expectation, that's definitely a key reason why I did college and then went on the whole academic adventure that I did. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, it's, it's amazing that to think back at all the changes that have happened at chess and it, each of them affects my person and how I view myself. For example, here's another one that's really interesting. Back in the day, without the computer, what, what the computer does is it allows every Buddy, whether they're rated 900 or what, to look at a grandmaster's game and to kind of call him an idiot <laughs> because you can see exactly where they screwed up. And the computer can even explain to you, in a sense, what you missed um, or what they missed. And I want to really stress that back in the day, there was a cult of the master and the grandmaster. And I can, it's hard to even imagine, but imagine yourself at one of these tournaments and you're a kid and somebody walks in and, and if there's a hush comes over the room and it's like, oh, he's a master, you know? Just the idea of like USCF 2200 was like a big deal. It's like, oh, he's a master. And there was like a mystique. And a lot of the mystique was the fact that you couldn't understand <laughs> what he's thinking. Even that it was possible for the guy to make a mistake, right? <laughs> right? It was like the guy had access to some hidden thing that was inscrutable. You didn't even know what it was. It was like a magical power um, that sometimes you get it with like a similar thing with we get certain cults of authors. Like there's a certain like, oh, I don't know how he ever wrote that thing or how she wrote that thing. And just this power, this mystical power emanating from the idea of the author. You had that mystique around in the chess world with masters and grandmasters. And what it led to was a kind of hierarchy that is still there a little bit, but is not there as much where there was like a sense of authority that the higher rated player had over the lower rated player. And it wasn't like somebody's rubbing in your face or something, but you definitely felt it. And that's just, that that's still there in a very minor way, but I'm telling you that it was thick in the atmosphere back in the day. I don't know how you felt about that, David, but mm -hmm. um, say, for example, when I went, David grew up in the Bay Area and I, I had family there, so I'd go visit there and there were some guys like Whitehead or Grief and they'd be around the streets and they'd be like, oh man, those guys, man, you want to mess with them? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like this real power of mystique around. I, I still I, I remember like the but trying to win my first game against a national master was like a really big deal. <laughs> you know, several times that like I had like chances in the game against them and failed. And it's like, wow, like even when you're like, even when you're doing well, like it's just a different like level, you know? Yeah. And also seeing guys like, like grief and, and Walter Brown right. at the coffee shops in Berkeley. Right. And right, right. like you like, whoa, <laughs> they're, they're real people in like a normal <laughs> place. Like, but they're not yeah, real yeah. people was crazy I, I think that hierarchy thing is still is still there like in in live uh in person in tournaments like if there's a group of players and like the higher rated the highest rated player in the group is talking everyone else is just like everyone just shuts up and just listens to them so if it's like mm -hmm. an im in a group of masters or like a gm in a group of ims or whatever if it's just like if the highest rated player is talking like everyone is just like listening to them it's only online that you get people that are like actually engine says this move is 0.7 and this move is 0.5 <laughs> so isn't this one better like you don't get that in person which i really like about the chess scene i like that kind of 
authority thing. Um, actually, another really interesting thing is, you know, just like, uh, yesterday we were, uh, or I was reading uh, a book, uh, going through a game from uh, Tall's Life in Games, one of his world championship games against Bodvinnik. And he was writing about how, like, you know, in the analysis after the match, one of Bodvinnik's seconds posted all this stuff about how Tall's, like, combination uh, wasn't quite sound. And it was just, like, months of, like, analysis. And then, like, one of Tall's seconds had to, like, refute that guy's analysis and <laughs> just, like, went back and forth. That's the part I, it's kind of a shame I, I missed out on because I was always... Um, you know, when I was growing up, I, I was too young to, like, analyze a position on my own. Like, I would just have no idea what I was doing. And by the time I was old enough, you know, to kind of appreciate, then computers had already taken over. And it was all about just analyzing um, with the uh, the engine. When I was younger and we would, like, maybe analyze a position with a coach or something, then it was just like, you know, whatever the coach says is correct. You know, we didn't even question it. <laughs> it's just like whatever he says about a position, like, that's... That's what it is. And and if you didn't know something, it didn't bother me back then. Like if I played some game and I lost and then I had like no idea why I lost, I was just like, huh, weird. Like I guess they just outplayed me. Whereas like now it's like that that would never <laughs> that would never hold. You know, I would I would have to check the game like with the engine. Oh, where did I go wrong? What was the mistake? Whereas back then it's like there were mysteries in the chess world and that was that was fine. It wasn't it wasn't a problem. Which is kinda interesting. Um, last thing I wanted to say is that my grandma still tells me to go get a real job, even though she, <laughs> you know, you think she would be kind of more okay with the Russian game thing. Uh, no, she still has this vision in her mind that, yeah, chess players are starving artists and should instead use their skills making money for the bank. Yeah. I mean, it's, hap it's, it's changed really, really rapidly. I mean, I think in my own life, my parents went from being like, like, when is he going to get over this? Right. Like, it's kind of like mm. he's a degenerate <laughs> to like, we're really proud of what you've contributed, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. like, you know, my own parents, like, you know, just evolving with with the times and with me. And, you know, it's interesting to think that exactly what we're doing here with the dojo, if chess were like a little bit less popular or had like a little bit less money in it. Mm hmm maybe everyone would be like, they're degenerates, right? And then if there's just a few more people who are into it and then other people see that other people are into it, they're like, oh, it's really impressive what they're doing or something like that. You know, it, I know, Jesse, you're not into like, you know, the social validation of what you do and stuff like that, but it's, but you're also very sensitive to noticing when it's out there and when that's a piece of it. And I think mm -hmm. it's like huge with chess. You can see the exact same activity and just like, is there or isn't there money in it? And then that's whether or not people validate what you're up to. Yeah, and it, honestly, it's, it's not just money. It's also there's this very interesting thing that's happened in the last five, especially the last five years, I feel, where there's a lot of social validation amongst chess players, regardless of rating, of their quest. And um, I can see it, on, especially like on Twitter with the chess punks thing. It's like, is it's not simply some monetary thing. It's like, oh yeah, there's people out there who share the bubble that I'm in. And one of the things I wanna really stress about chess compared to now to back in the day is back in the day, you were alone, my friend. <laughs> you were all alone. There, you would be studying by yourself with some books and there was very few people to talk to, no one to validate you. And that was it, that was it. There was not this, thing where you had, especially now with, let's call it accessibility to masters in the way they thought or like, you know, had out or, or not just about chess, but about anything, what their daily lives looked like. You had no idea. You were just all alone by yourself. And that kind of, um, there was kind of like a, the players who got good, right, were these people who were good at sitting by themselves and not needing some incredible social validation, right? Whereas now it's very interesting. You get validation immediately, even if you won a game as a 1500 or whatever, and you post it on Twitter, people are like, right on, dude, great. And I guess that's cool. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. great, man. You're, you, you know, you're able to um, be part of something much quicker uh, than back in the day. It's a huge difference, massive. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I love this topic because it's stunning to me how much, when I think back on it, the difference is just a completely different game. One of the things I want to say about the hierarchy and the mystique around players too, is that when I think about, when you ask yourself, well, how is the game itself and the way it's played changed? And um, I think the, the anecdote, which Claire clears it uh, up for me the most is when I was doing commentary on the U.S. senior before the um, before COVID happened, and you know the juniors running alongside of it, and so we're just doing commentary, and I had uh, a wonder Liang in there. He's a prominent young kid, now a GM, very strong kid, and uh, I asked him to just comment off the uh, the cuff about one of these uh, the games from the older section, you know. And it was very strong older GMs playing the U.S. senior, which I now aspire to play myself. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, this is like chess from the 90s. <laughs> you know, I was like, chess from the 90s? What are you talking about? And what he meant was back in the day before the computer, you had plans and you had like a conceptual vision about how the game would develop. And a lot of times your opponent would cooperate with that vision because they also thought, okay, this is where the game is going. And so both players kind of like conspiracy <laughs> would be following the edges of this plan down this road. Whereas now with the computer, it's become much more move for move, move by move chess, right? So like, instead of thinking in these grand conceptual terms, it's more like, okay, you know, step for step, here we going along and tactics the whole way no longer like this strategic conception of the game, um, vastly different. And one of the things about it that I wanna stress is when you think about the old cult of the grandmaster, part of the thing was like the idea that this guy had a, a vision of the way the board and the pieces worked. And that's, the idea of that vision is completely compromised if you start thinking of chess as a move by move game, right? There's no, because there's still like strategic ideas and of course all that stuff, it's not like it's out the window, but once you think of it as a move by move game where the when you look at it with the computer and it starts bouncing all over the place, showing you all kinds of ideas that you had no idea that they were there, you start realizing, oh, the whole mystique, the whole mystique has been crushed, man. <laughs> um, and it's this entirely different game where now kids can be competitive who have no strategic conception who have just like gotten their tactics reasonable and their openings reasonable. And all of a sudden they're at least dangerous, you know, they're not going to become world champion or anything until they get some strategic understanding, but they can become dangerous, which back in the day, they were not, they were not dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it seems like yeah. uh, chess knowledge is evolving. Like people are mm, right getting like stronger and more knowledgeable for their level. And uh, I've definitely felt that I feel like in tournaments, not just in terms of opening knowledge or like in-game knowledge, but um, I think people nowadays, like one specific thing I've noticed, uh, like especially for like lower rate of players, are much more willing to uh, to sacrifice material uh, right. than they used to be. And I think that's because the engine has shown all these opportunities and there are all these lessons, you know, from tournaments and people are following high level events. And I think like almost every round in the commentary, it'll be a theme like, oh, here, here you should sack a pawn for the initiative. Here you should sack a pawn to avoid getting a really bad, terrible passive position. And so this is the one thing where people have just like picked up on and are now much less fearful of, uh, of giving away stuff. And right. they have much less fear of authority. So, for example, back in the day, we're talking just 10, 15 years ago. If I was playing a lower rated player, so many of the games that I would have would be them being in a crouch position <laughs> all game long, just in a crouch. Don't hurt me, cry. Don't hurt me. I'm just hiding. <laughs> and now they're biting back. Yeah. <laughs> they're biting back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, remember that like Petrosian and then later Topolov were like famous for like an exchange sack, right? Mm -hmm. Right. For like sacrificing exchanges as if that weren't just something that everybody does. Like, mm. like, oh, this one person in the world sacrifices exchanges. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, when you've got two pawns with an outpost and there's only one file and you put your rook in the outpost square, because if they take it with a knight or a bishop, you know, you recapture with like a protected pass pawn and like a good structure. Yeah. Like basically one of the most obvious kinds of exchange stack possible. Right. Mm -hmm. That was like a revelation. Like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> you know, now, 
I, now I think like your average, like 1500, if they're looking at a fight on like a single open file and they know that the person who plays Rook C5 or Rook C4 first, like it's just, you just put your piece there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's much, uh, much more prevalent these days. Um, I mean, it feels like at the time, yeah, at the time, Petrosian and Topalov, they were kind of like revolutionary, but yeah, it shows how much, mm-hmm. how much it's, things have changed uh, since then. Here's another thing that's interesting about it is that you could could talk about the speed of chess knowledge dispersing. And so let me give you an example. 1972, or excuse me, I guess it was 1971, Fisher and Taimanoff in the match. And games two and four in particular introduced the idea, which we covered, actually we covered game four, I believe, on our endgame sensei with the so-called Fisher ending, rook and bishop versus rook and knight. And... um, Fisher not only showed that with like an incredible clarity of like, oh my God, this is now a thing, but also that the bishop was a stronger piece. Now, back in the day, this was not the, this was not how people thought. They thought, okay, knights are better in some situations, bishops are better in others, essentially equal, equal pieces. And one of the things that's interesting, what I mean by information dispersal is that the top GMs in the world might have seen those games, but they did not accept that. They did not accept that as some kind of truth. And uh, a hilarious book to read in this regard is Sarah Wan's, um, like his, his Chess Duels, it's called, is a book where he mm-hmm. talks about the games he played against the world champions. A good book. And what you see in it is Sarah Wan in the 80s didn't understand that the bishop was a stronger piece. He didn't, he didn't get it at all. And by Sensei Smyslov, he didn't get it at all either. He still kept playing the same way. And what I want to stress is now, one of the things that's so interesting is everyone has turned on the computer and the computer is like, Bishop? Oh yeah, that's better. It loves the Bishop, man. It freaking yeah. loves the Bishop. Space? Oh yeah, let's take it. Space is amazing. And so people turn on their computers and then the the, the you know, they use the authority of that to change their way of thinking about the game, which happens so much quicker than it, it did in the past. Where it took decades for people to really appreciate the Fisher revolution with both Fisher ending and then the bishop. Right. right? Just as one example. Yeah. You know, people still don't um, fully approve of the uh, of the bishop pair, the advantage of the bishop pair. There's a growing community out there that believes that the bishop pair is something that can only be exploited by really strong players. And so for uh-huh. club players, it's not worth <laughs> trying to get the bishop pair. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Which I think it's kind I of have a funny some, point. I have some sympathy for that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's in a similar way. Um, you, you have lower rated players wanting the queen over the two rooks because mm-hmm. it's too hard to coordinate the two rooks. Mm-hmm. Kind of a similar phenomenon. And it's true, you need a certain level of skill before that becomes applicable. And so, for example, one of my favorite rants is when people play the queen c2 nimzo, where you're giving up time in order to get a bishop. You better you better have a deep understanding of how that bishop works, my friend. <laughs> Yesterday, Jesse, I was commenting a game where um, somebody had played bishop d2 and a3 against the nimzo. Uh, to yeah. um to get the bishop pair right and recapture without the doubled pawns and uh, their opponent played c takes d4 bishop takes d4 so glorious dark squared bishop and yeah. they're just developing their pieces and then black plays knight c6 <laughs> and white left the bishop on d4 yeah, they didn't yeah. drop it back to c3 there was no, there was nothing else going on <laughs> no no tactics no rush mm-hmm. development was complete right and they just left the piece there. And that's like, you know, leaving a rook somewhere where your opponent's bishop is attacking it, right? It's like they just attack you with a less valuable piece and you don't retreat it. But as you said, not only that, but they'd spent, they'd played all these opening moves, the point of which was to have that bishop, right? So, right, right, right. So um, not, yeah, I mean, not knowing what, sometimes not knowing the reasons behind what you're doing. Still there. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, with... Um with all the new technology, there are definitely like new challenges. And nowadays, I think one of them is that, um, and I don't think that was the case in the game, because uh, I saw that game you were talking about, David. I don't think that was the case 
yesterday, but uh, necessarily. But yeah, people are definitely putting a huge focus on like trying to remember their opening moves and not so much like mm-hmm. understanding the deeper ideas, um, which I think. I think back in the day, it was probably like all about like the ideas, right? Like what you're playing for. And, and now with like all these databases and like Chessable and Chessbase, there's all this access to all this theory. But yeah, it's actually not clear if it's a great use of time uh, for, for players to be, to be studying that theory. I think we, we mostly think that it's not a good use of time. Um, and actually, uh, I see people all the time on, uh, in our Discord and on Reddit um, asking a question like, you know, I'm 700. How many moves should I be memorizing? Is um, is like MCO a good book, or is like ECFCO a good book? Like those like old like you know those old books. I forgot what they're called, but with like the yes. <laughs> we used them. We used yeah. them. Jesse and I did. We <laughs> had we had like MCO called, for openings. We had the MCO, informant right. to see the latest novelties. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. just like, oh yeah, how many moves should I be like memorizing here? It's like zero. You shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't be trying to do that at all. Um, which I, I think is one of the problems of like the new age, in that there's so many resources out there, um, and a lot of them are just marketed, right? They're not actually useful for chess players, but they're kind of like marketed, like, oh, this is what you should be doing. And of course, people that are not experienced in the chess world, they have no idea how to differentiate between <laughs> good advice and bad advice. And so we get this kind of issue. I've got I've got another huge change. OK, time controls, just the the, yeah. the time spent on chess. Um, and from some perspectives, as far as like your experience of playing chess or my experience of playing chess, you might almost say this has like a, an effect that's comparable to the, the, the computer engines changing things, right? Like computer engines changing our tools and our, and our ideas and our access to stuff. But then, I mean, when you're actually playing the game, how much time do you spend playing like five minute games versus 10 minute games? Uh, you know, the lack of adjournments. We're not playing, uh, you know, 10 game correspondence matches against each other by postcard. Like, I don't know, just the amount of time that we spend on the game, what's left on our clock when we get to the end game, this kind of stuff might be changing your experience of playing chess almost as much mm-hmm. as the new knowledge and information. Yeah, absolutely. I want to say for, for me, when ICC back in like 1990 something, when I got to go on there and play very strong players, it was like a huge access point. Because I previously the amount of times I'd played title players wasn't that much, so all of a sudden I had access to all these players playing blitz, amazing. Um, so that was already one thing. It, it allows access, I think. Blitz does online blitz to the game in which previously you know traveling to tournaments so uh, costs a lot, takes time, all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think is important to think about chess at the high level is Anand made a great quote when he was doing some commentary recently that when you try to compare Magnus with say Kasparov, where it's unfair and kind of unreasonable is back in the day for Kasparov, it was just classical chess. Whereas for Magnus, it's also blitz and rapid. Also for his ego, you can tell it too. Like he wants to win all those things and almost, and for me, it's even weird when he's taking blitz and rapid so seriously, but he does. Mm-hmm. And I think the younger generation also feels that too. They even want to win at the bullet, you know? So it's like being good at chess is being good now across a spectrum of time controls for the top players. Well, like, I whereas- think it's a very natural um, uh, thing to to evolve because it's like if, if you imagine a world where like all the games in classical chess are drawn and all the players are just drawing each other, then the only way to differentiate or one of the main ways to differentiate is by kind of reducing the time control um, or, you know, uh, Fisher 960. Um, but like one of the main ways would be just to reduce the time control until there's a bigger disparity in, in the strength mm-hmm. of the players. So kind of to compensate for people getting stronger. You take yeah. away their time and see how strong they are with less time. And, and <laughs> due to like kind of the drawish nature of the game, like a lot of end games that are better are like mathematically drawn. And, and people have gotten a lot better at holding those end games too. And it's true. We do a thing where we tell people like, learn how to checkmate with bishop and knight, let's say. And then we'll be like, okay, if you can do it with like five minutes, can you do it with two minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, something I'll sometimes do 
when I do like Endgame Sensei type training, uh, before I had before I had Jesse, the way I would do it is I would like play an Endgame like that with, and this was before 30 second increment. So I would sit down with my training partner. We would play an Endgame with like let's say 15 minutes on the clock, and then if we thought we were starting to get better at it, we would take the time down to 10 minutes and see if we could still like execute the end game that we'd been learning. And then we'd take it down to five. And if we could play it well with five minutes, then we're like, okay, we understand this end game and we'd move on. So maybe like a similar thing with overall chess skill getting better, taking down the time. Yeah. So it seems like general time controls have gotten faster over the years. Um, I've been watching this very interesting uh, documentary with uh, Kasparov on the Levitov chess channel where they're just interviewing Kasparov about all his like, you know, earlier games and, and achievements. Interesting. Uh, it's great. It's got uh, English subtitles. It's it's in Russian, but the subtitles are, are, are quite good. Um, and he was actually, he made the point that the uh, shortening of time controls actually corresponds with like his helm as being world champion. Like that's when they got rid of adjournments and that's when things really started to, uh, to speed up, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting, but and maybe yeah. they transitioned from 40 and two and a half to 40 and two. Yeah, I, I think he mentioned that, that, that that's when they, uh, I think during one of like the Kasparov-Karpov matches, they wanted to cut it by half an hour. And then they were both like, what, what are you talking about? This is, this is a disgrace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you guys funny. how long chess games used to be. <laughs> it used to be really long. Imagine 40 moves to an half, and then you got another hour for the next 20 moves, and then another hour for the next hour, another 20 moves after that. It was incredible. It was incredibly long. Yeah, I kind of miss it, but I also realize, like, how did they do it? It was incredible. Um, another shift, which has got to be mentioned, and I think it's really accelerated in the last couple of years, is that... Uh, the game has become much younger. We've talked a little bit on the podcast about aging. I like that. I liked when we did, talked about that. It was an interesting discussion we had. And that is kind of going in hand, hand in hand with the chess players just in general getting younger. So I just, as an anecdote, I played two weeks ago or so in this Baltimore Open. And my first round opponent was, I don't know, nine years old. And it wasn't, I won, but it wasn't an easy struggle. The next guy was like 15. Then I played the one old time GM that was there and we drew. And then I played another very tough FM who was like 16 years old. And my final round opponent was like 17. So it was like this thing where it affects the game socially as well as in, as in and indeed also, of course, of how the game's played. And I just want to say for me, one of the things I understood in that new environment was back in the day when I would go from tournament to tournament, I would know everybody at those tournaments because I had been playing them for years. And so imagine you're sitting on like the first row of boards or whatever, boards one through 10, and I would be able to look down that line of people and I would know all of those people, maybe not well, not necessarily friends or anything, but I'd be like, oh, I know where that person's from. Uh, you know, I know roughly this and that about their game, you know, um, now, <laughs> now I look down there, I don't know anybody. And then, you know, the, that tournament too, was like, <clears throat> I was hanging out at lunch between rounds. And back in the day, I would know somebody would have lunch. And, I, and there were people who came up to me because they knew about the dojo and they're like, oh yeah, crying, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't like have any, it wasn't like we went back decades or something like that. And all the old timers, at least for the last couple tournaments since back after COVID, they're all kind of gone. And I think maybe that trend, I think that trend had been imperceptibly happening. I say imperceptibly, at least to me, the trend of it getting younger before COVID. But now it's just super evident. It's super evident how young the game has become. Um, yeah, I think when we were younger, Jesse, if there had been like a nine or 10 year old in the open section, it would have been one of them. And it would have been like a big deal. Like everybody would be like, oh, yeah. my God, there's like a kid in the open. Yeah, yeah you probably, probably already know open. their name ahead of time. Yeah, it didn't happen. It didn't really happen. Right. Yeah. Huh. Um, I think another thing that that's happening and also just bears mentioning is. You know, chess has always been uh, very you know, more and more dudes than women, 
strongly more dudes. And I would say um, that the interesting thing there is that circa 1990, when the Polgars came on the scene, there was the biggest sense of, let's say, hopefulness or whatever, that women were going to break into the game and it was going to be this whole brand new deal. And that, I think to most people's surprise, it didn't happen because it really felt like there was, you know, we can argue about why it didn't or yada, yada, but there was this real sense that it was going to happen around 1990 and then it didn't. Um, and now one of the things that's still remarkable to me, like, and just also my last couple tournaments because post COVID, because I was at post COVID, I was like, okay, well, are we going to see a bunch more women out there? We've definitely seen a lot more younger people. And I would say proportionally, it's still very minor, which is, and one thing about it's gotta be said is when you go online and you look at Twitter, there's a lot of very, and on Twitch too, there's a very large group of women who are doing very successful streams and you know Twitter feeds and all this stuff, but in the tournament level, I'm not seeing it yet. So I think one of the interesting things about me thinking about the last 50 years is it's changed, but so far not so much, you know? And ultimately, like if chess is really gonna break through, I, I've always felt since 1990 that that was what we needed. And, and yeah, the hopefulness was not just like, oh, you know, women are gonna come into their own, but like chess would become more mainstream <laughs> by women coming into the game, which I think is definitely true. And I think, especially when you see the social media stuff and you see how successful the women streamers are, that's like, oh, right, yeah, chess needs them. Chess needs them in the game. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think, um, I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about, but things are getting a lot more online. And uh, the way it's going, it feels like we're headed headed towards a future where online tournaments will be just as important as OTB tournaments. Uh, at least that's like how I think things are shifting. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> not quite. I don't know about that. Certainly more, certainly quite important. Like you'll have top players in the world playing in them. Yeah. I know it's hard for you guys Pretty to good. hear. I understand you don't like the changing <laughs> aspects. <laughs> it's not about whether I or not I like it. I still think there's some little you know so, some untouchable things about being in person when, when you when you play chess so I, I don't think it'll ever quite equalize but i mean it could go from like 99 percent importance to otb to like 60 40 or 65 35 or something i can't see it 50 50 myself yeah. yeah yeah well it's definitely not i don't think it's 99 right now i think we've already come down a bit yeah yeah uh, i agree for sure I do prefer OTB, but yeah, that's just where it feels like, like I'm imagining like 50 years into the future and it's just like, it's very fast and it's very online. That's what I'm feeling. <laughs> it's just like the trajectory that seemed to be uh, taking, but no, there'll always be, there'll always be room for people who just want to like sit down with like a normal wooden chessboard. I'll definitely die on that hill with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think there'll always be always be room for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not asking anyone to die on any hill. I'm not trying to like object to your comment, and I don't have any skin in the game whether other people prefer playing online or you know if if Magnus and Wesley and the top players of the next generation decide online tournaments are the best thing for them. That's fine with me. I don't care. I would just be like a little bit surprised because I think I, I I think there is something to playing in person, but. Mm -hmm. I could totally see that 2027 Farouge is like, I won't play the next world championship unless it's online. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, do you guys have any, okay. any last, uh, last thoughts on, on this topic before we wrap up? I think we talked so much about the changes and just at the end, Jesse touched on, you know, female participation and that, how that, has been something that has lagged. I think it's maybe interesting to say what hasn't changed really briefly in 50 years, like three things which to me have lagged. Like Jesse, female participation has not advanced the way I would like it to or would have hoped it would. I'm not gonna say what other people like hope or expect, but like for myself, it's it's underperformed. Mm. Um, another thing is like Bobby Fisher, he was already saying like, you know, Classical chess is like dead. It's played out. There's like agreed opening draws, uh -huh. blah, blah, blah. He came up with 
chess 960 fisher random chess right mm. that's that's like an idea from bobby it's 50 years later i think it's like 20 years overdue by now and i'm also disappointed in how much mm. how little that's mm. changed you know and i don't you know we're not going to say why but that's something which i would have expected could have changed more in the last 20 years and hasn't yet and i wonder if it will and then the third thing that hasn't really changed much is like chess politicians. And again, you wonder if and mm. when that might ever change. But the way chess players kind of get, you know, the, the way the way FIDE and national federations operate and and how all that stuff works out is, um, you know, still pretty comparable in some ways to 50 years ago. So that's something else that hasn't progressed dramatically in my view, just in my view. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that makes sense. For me, I feel like um, endgame technique. People are still like really struggling <laughs> with endgame technique and like simple endgames. I feel like the knowledge hasn't really evolved there. <laughs> but that's, that's something I'm going to try to correct in the future. Yeah. I guess one thing I'd just end with then is uh, that hasn't changed that I guess I wish it would is Chess has definitely become more popular. We've had, as we, we just know, this show is about really two booms, the Fisher boom and then recently the, we would call it the Queen's Gambit boom, but also it was an internet boom, COVID boom, uh, is that when I look at tournaments, specifically in the U.S., but I don't think it's changed much in Europe either, let's say open tournaments, the conditions of the players there has not improved dramatically. We're still playing in kind of close close quarters. There's like often a board right next to you. Uh, the prize fund isn't great. The um, lighting is often terrible. You know, it's, there's a lot that could be better about it. And so I think although chess has progressed a lot in terms of popularity in a variety of ways, the tournaments themselves still look uh, in terms of the conditions, the demographics have shifted for sure, but the conditions themselves, I really wish had changed. They're not that much different than they were, let's say, 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. All right. Right. All right. That was fun, you guys. Very cool. That will uh, wrap it up for the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, we'll see you next week.